It's time for Animal Outlook's Vegan Family Podcast. Welcome to this very special episode of the Vegan Family Podcast. So today we have a very special guest uh, in one of her first ever public appearances, Animal Outlook's undercover investigator, Erin Wing. Hi, Erin. Hi, Cheryl. So we wanted to talk today because... I just thought your, you know, your story is so interesting. And I really thought that vegan parents, vegan kids, people are sort of interested in being vegan, um, would especially like to hear your perspective on what brought you to where you are, the investigations and what that was like. Um, how did you kind of, you know, I feel like the first thing people ask, and I definitely have this curiosity is, how did you really feel like you could turn your interest in helping animals into something that was going to be really this impactful? You know, really that sense of confidence. And we've talked about on the podcast before this feeling of self-efficacy to go out and do something that's really going to make a real difference. And of course, the bigger thing I think that makes this moment in time very exciting is this is uh, the occasion of the release of your last investigation in the field, which is the Dick Van Dam dairy investigation. And you decided to make that your last one. And you haven't been speaking out publicly until now about your experience in the field and showing your, your name and your face to the world um, and telling your story. So this is one of the first times, you know, we're getting that opportunity to really hear from you. Right. Yeah. And, um, there are a couple of different things that you know, I could give some insight into. And I guess what I really would want to start out with is just how I managed to even get into something uh, that is so much bigger than myself. And there's quite a story behind that that I've touched upon a couple of times during interviews that I've done while I was still an undercover investigator. Yeah, let's hear that. You know, it's funny because since you and I work together, I feel like I get the privilege of hearing all this in-depth perspective that you have and these very exciting, you know, stories, this sort of spy world that you're <laughs> you're living. Um, and I just feel all the time that I wish the world could hear really, you know, what you go through and how you think about things and what you've learned and, and those experiences. So I'm really excited that we get to kind of hear this, but yeah, let's start at the beginning. Let's, let's hear about, you know, who you are and what did you, um, you know, what, what happened to make you feel like I want to take this interest I have in helping animals and do this frankly, very difficult, um, and, and dangerous thing with it, um, in a way that's very sort of self-sacrificing. I think, you know, what's so interesting to me about this from a family point of view, if I kind of put on my mom hat and I remember, <laughs> you know, let's say 11, 12 year old, um, who was really getting into what can I do? You know, I understand this problem. It's so overwhelming. It's so, um, you know, sort of devastating when you first learn about this. And I think when you're 
a, a young enough person that you're just starting to understand the world and you learn about this, it's, it's so much more intense, I think, than when you learn about it as an adult. Um, and that can, can really kind of shape your personality and your sense of what you want to do with the world. Um, and so how, you know, is that something that you relate to in terms of feeling like, wow, this issue is so big. How do you get from that to becoming an investigator? Right. And it's, there are a lot of things to think about when you try to figure out, you know, I'm sure a lot of kids have had that thought at some point in their lives um, who end up getting involved in activism or anything like that, that they have that idea that they want to change the world when they're younger and the world seems so big and they seem so small that it seems like a daunting task. I think I also thought that way myself when I was younger, especially because of my surroundings. I did not grow up with a really, you know, happy home and a really loving environment. So there were a lot of things, I guess you could say, like I had the cards stacked up against me, uh, so to speak. And I did have some instances where I thought that this was going to be the only life I would ever know, uh, being in a lower income family um, and dealing with a lot of trauma that occurred um, when I was younger. So there were a lot of setbacks and a lot of obstacles for me to overcome in order to get to a point where I thought that I could do something on a larger scale to help more people the way I wanted myself to be helped when I was younger. So, so let's put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's just like you when you were younger. Um, now that you have this perspective, you know, and this, these experiences, what could your parents or other adults in your life or peers have done to sort of support you on that journey um, and make you feel like, this is something I can do. I actually can change the world. I can go from things are happening that are traumatic and difficult to I can do something about it. I mean, if that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if that's kind of the journey, how do adults, um, other, you know, friends, anybody who is in a child's child like this in their lives, how are they able to help? That's a really good question. Um, I think that, you know, in my circumstances where I did not have a lot of interaction with my parents, um, for any kids who are in that specific type of situation, I mostly took it upon myself to inform my, my actual parents um, of, you know, all the things that were going on in the world that were wrong. Um, so I, I did find a lot of support online by, you know, looking up all this information on what was going on. And those were really important resources to have for someone who was not really having that um, base of a family that would be as supportive. But on the other hand, um, if there are parents who are wanting to be supportive of children who have these ideals there that they want to affect 
change on a greater scale, a larger scale, I would definitely say that what I wanted most was for there to be open conversations where there were different viewpoints, you know, presented and there was just a frank discussion. And I, I've had quite a few of those discussions with my mom, actually, even though she has more, um, you know, set in her ways a viewpoint on the way things are in the world. And there are a lot of cultural differences that um, will influence the way she thinks about, you know, animals and um, their place in the world. But we've had a lot of open conversations and a lot of discussions that were very, you know, not really all that heated because we could understand that this was just a talk that we were having. And at the end of it, we would laugh and we would both come away with different perspectives on our viewpoints, which was really great. Yeah, I think there's something really important about that, about taking the child's point of view seriously. Um, you know, it's something like I, I see this in, you know, like say mainstream advice columns that are not part of the animal or vegan world or just talking with other parents who are kind of outside of that world. There's this desire on the part of some parents, I think, to, you know, that doesn't come from a, a malicious place at all, but to protect their kids. And I think that also tends to morph into this sort of sense that the parents know about the world and the kids just have to catch up and learn it. <laughs> right. And I remember I certainly experienced where, um, you know, it's like, this is something that's, that is happening. The way that these animals are being raised and killed is horrific. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, um, you know, that, that could legitimately kind of deny or invalidate that. And yet I felt like I was certainly getting attempts to do that on the part of adults around me um, when I was young, you know, and I think a lot of kids have that experience. I mean, I hear people say, oh, you know, my kid, I read a recent advice column, I think in Slate, where it was like, my kid is about to figure out that, you know, meat comes from animals. And, you know, there's just a lot of hand-wringing about like, what do they do about that? They're so sensitive. And it's like, well, yeah, it is a really difficult ethical issue to reckon with. And you need to open your mind to the possibility that you're on the wrong side of it, right? I mean, the idea that a child can bring a really complicated and valid point of view to the table um, I think just acknowledging that is what, you know, maybe as you're describing, like allows you to have those conversations with your parents and really what the need is, I think when you're, you know, when you're young and starting out is being able to just process it. Right. It's like, okay, I have all this information and I hear parents say like, oh, it's just a phase. Let's just ignore them. Let's just make it hard for them. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. They just kind of wanted to go away. And I think a lot of the socializing around this issue does ultimately kind of make that go away. And it just creates a disconnect in the kids between like what it is they're doing and, you know, these sort of new ideas that they haven't really even been able to build or, or truly explore or even process because, you know, they're, they're not in an environment where people can allow them to do that. Um, so, you know, either you have somebody who is just going to be sort of assertive and confident enough to override that and to push enough, um, you know, or you're going to have an environment where you have people who are willing to listen, you know, regardless of the fact that 
it might be a child who has a perspective on something that's absolutely, you know, has is more ethically complicated and valid than maybe the position and maybe, well, maybe more well thought out too than the position that the adults are taking. And that's what's really tough. And I think the question is so interesting, like for you, because, um, you know, I think it's relatively more recent for you. I mean, you're, you're significantly younger, I think, than many of the parents who are listening to this, um, but older than the kids, I think, for the most part. <laughs> so um, being able to sort of bridge that divide and get a sense of, okay, how did I go from there to being able to actually be on the front lines doing something that's really impactful and reaches, you know, millions of people. Right. And um, to touch on what you said earlier, I think it's really important uh, for parents to listen to whatever their kids are wanting to talk about, um, even with any, you know, ethical complications that might arise from that or whatnot, because um, that, I mean, ultimately kids just want to be heard. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, their voices are very small in, you know, a very big world. And in the home, it's the first platform that they'll ever have is to to be able to have those conversations with their parents. So I think that's really important and builds up their confidence in a way that they feel as though they can challenge a lot of other people's viewpoints who might not be, be their parents and challenge, you know, ultimately an entire world's viewpoint on, for instance, how we treat animals in our society. And I think that the the conversations I had with my mom really did affect the way I was able to um, sort of visualize myself in a role where I could be that person to have those difficult conversations with people from all, you know, walks of life. So how, so how would you advise a kid who's in your role, like let's say, you know, a 15 year old kid who's really just learning about this and it's all very new and raw and confusing and they're not necessarily getting the kind of, you know, support and structure and, you know, safe places to kind of bounce these ideas and process through an understanding, you know, what would you tell them about how they should think about these issues? I guess what I would tell them is that even though they might be young, the perspectives that they have are still important and valid. And I don't think a lot of younger kids these days are told that. Um, Most of the time their interests are regarded as trivial or something like that because they're young. But Mm -hmm. a lot of how we think now is influenced by what we were taught and what we learned when we were younger. And that just sticks with us. So if they aren't receiving that same type of support in the home, there are always many organizations that are very supportive where they can get involved in numerous different ways, um, like Animal Outlook and Um, other organizations where we have a ton of resources available for children to interact with the movement and be more aware of what's going on and the information that they need in order to be more well-informed, possibly when they have those, you know, interesting debates with their parents at home. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good idea. And it's such a nice thing to have, you know, those, that those ability to have kind of virtual communities, um, 
I grew up in a time when I had to go to the physical library to do the research on these issues. Before. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, I, I think there's something that parents who are not vegan might sort of fear um, the, the implications or the potential outcomes of a child going through this process. Um, but what I've learned having my own kids and, you know, being very upfront, obviously about these values and what's going on in the world and, and all of that is how much the kids really do develop their ethical reasoning using the animal issue kind of as a lens. And I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but it's just, it's so mind blowing to me to hear them say things that kind of stop me in my tracks still, you know, I mean, for example, these very complicated issues around COVID and schools being open or closed and daycares being open, but schools being closed and all those things. And, you know, my, my six-year-old will say like, well, that doesn't make any sense because these teachers are getting, <laughs> you know, are going to be getting the germs. But what about, right. you know, so those sorts of things, I feel like um, the language and the skill and the critical thinking is coming from kind of being able to use the animal issues as a springboard to get into that. And I think certainly with my kids, it makes me feel like they have a greater sense of their own, you know, capabilities, their own power to think and to make decisions and to be confident in their decisions and to also talk through things, right? So there are times when, you know, obviously you disagree with anyone, child or adult, um, and being able to really talk through those things without, um, you know, it just being an unproductive conversation. So I think there's something really enhancing um, for kids and their ability to understand ethics and process these complicated issues that really comes from seeing the truth and being able to say, you know, being able to not be dismissed in the first place and be, you know, like, I hate the idea that, um, you know, you'd be, the kids would be told, oh, no, you know, like, it's fine, or some people, like, I had to stop myself from saying things like, well, if people just knew about it, maybe they would change their minds, because that's not right. Like, I don't want to create space in the kids. I was just talking with my sister the other day, this is not exactly related, but um, about how much it bugs me, because she has a, a baby who's just learning to scoot, and, you know, will be moving on to crawling or walking, and, um, I was like, can I tell you the thing that drove me absolutely crazy when um, I had my first baby, when they're starting to learn to move around, the, the moms who would, you know, the baby would scoot or crawl their way all the way across the room, you know, to like, at, let's say we're at like a music class or, you know, baby class or whatever. And they'd be just really wanting to touch some object, like, you know, maybe it was like somebody's purse or a toy or whatever, nothing dangerous. And then the mom would go over and, they, you know, they'd spend all this time, like, scooting their way, <laughs> crawling their way across the room. Then the mom would go over and just, like, yoink them all the way back to where they started with, you know, without letting them touch the thing or hold the thing. Oh, and then is just a metaphor, I think, for, like, <laughs> how much it bothers me that, you know, you know, that it seems like it's such a responsibility to me to kind of enter the kid's world and appreciate the effort that's being made in the kind of, you know, the journey 
the, you know, the, the challenge and the sort of sweat and blood and tears that goes into like what it is they want to be doing. Um, and I think just kind of being in a, in a position of listening can, you know, really help with that and lay the groundwork for decision-making in a way that could end up in a very cool place. Right. That's a really great metaphor. <laughs> the baby scooting all across the room, trying to get to that one thing and then being, I guess their plans being thwarted. Yeah. And I it would just always bug me because I'd be like, come on, just let him have it. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the first times I've ever even gotten to move across the room. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think the reason I understand like the, the social pressure, right. It would always be for some like politeness or conformity reason that the, that the parent was doing that. Right. Like, oh, well, we all sit and face the teacher during music class. We don't crawl across the room. It's like, <laughs> that's not an important rule, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, yeah, I think there is some kind of parallels here um, that, like I said, I think being able to sort of seat your power um, and your kind of pursuit of knowledge and what it is you can do about it is really useful. I think a lot of parents are worried about oh, I'm going to traumatize my kid. And you mentioned trauma a little bit. And I was just thinking recently about um, how, you know, people ask us all the time, like, how do you deal with the trauma of watching these videos? And of course, in your case, it's, you know, an order of magnitude worse than that because you were there, you know, and you, I, knowing you, I know you put a lot of pressure on yourself to really do a really good job you know, plus, you know, obviously you're watching all of this and having to um, not react, you know, not blow your cover and all of that. And I think um, for me, I realize, you know, obviously I'm one step removed because I'm just watching videos, but I realize that if I'm working on the investigation, if I'm like, you know, figuring out what can we do with this, I'm in the zone. Like I, it's like, okay, yeah, it's a problem, but now we're going to do something with this. Now we're, we've got it and we can use it as a tool for greater change. I remember one time um, another organization released an investigation and it really bugged me. Um, and I, because of the horrible nature of the, organ of the investigation. And um, I was like, you know, my dad happened to call and I just, he's like, what are you up to? And I'm like, well, this is what I watched this morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't usually do that um, because, you know, I, it wasn't, it was something that, you know, I didn't know was coming and I hadn't been involved in and I wasn't, you know, helping with whatever. But when it's our stuff, I get into that zone and I kind of do something about it. And I don't know, um, you know, if you kind of relate to that or there's this sense of like, how do you cope with the sort of unending violence and the scale of it all um, in the investigations that, that you did? Right. Yeah, that really makes me think about how people can be, because we're in this world, we're in the movement, and we're physically doing things, we're, you know, doing things in some, on some type of scale to try to affect change. And we're working with the knowledge that what we're doing is making some type of difference in some way. Uh, because we're within this organization uh, that is trying to do all these different things and we're releasing investigations, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think about 
what it is like to be on the opposite side where you're just watching these investigations release and watching the footage and then feeling horrible afterwards. And then you're not within the movement. So what can you do about it other than feel absolutely terrible that these things are happening? And I think that you can go one of two ways with that. You can get involved in the movement like I did and just jump headfirst into it and say, you know, I want to be one of those people. I want to be one of those investigators, which is what I ended up doing. Or for people who are stuck in that place where they're just like, what can I do? I think that you would definitely seek out these ways that you can donate, you can volunteer, you can uh, spread the word even, uh, sharing through social media. It's crazy nowadays how effective that is, but it does enact some type of, you know, action or, you know, there's the ripple effect where it, it does eventually lead to some type of change in these times that we're living in now. So even if you're not involved within the movement, there are ways that you can get involved in some way without, you know, completely diving headfirst into it like I did and ending up on a factory farm in the middle of nowhere for months yeah. on end. Yeah, what I'm really hearing you say is, you know, you have a choice when you when you see this traumatic information and it's either to step in or step out. Right. There's that initial reaction I think people have sometimes to step out, right, to avoid it and detach from it and either deny the legitimacy of it or say, oh, this is just, you know, one bad apple type thing. And I think if you sit with it for any any length of time beyond like the two seconds that, you know, some people will, will tolerate, um, you realize that it's not, you know, these are not aberrant examples. These are not bad apples. This is how these industries operate. You know, these are violent industries. These are, you know, very basic and basic behaviors are being deprived of these from these animals. And it's really like heavy material to sit with. And I think, you know, so that initial kind of like flight response um, might feel, I think, good in the moment, but or feel like you're doing something about it in the moment. But really, that stepping in, that engaging, bringing it closer to you, engage with it more, you know, get involved, seems to be, to me, the better way to feel like you can use this to empower yourself, to actually change something about it. Um, you know, I, one thing that I've talked about... Um, over the years with investigators and people who've really sat with this material is there's like, there's a process, like you go through, you know, that initial, like, Oh my God, this is horrible. And then you sort of sit with it and you're like, Oh, and there are these weird little sort of nuances to this story. Like these people who are doing this work, like are, are people. You know? Right complex and they're not you know it's a lot of shades of gray there's some really like just counterintuitive examples of kindness from the same person who's being very cruel um there's you know the kinds of pressure some of these people are under is really you know financial pressure that kind of makes you see the system differently the government's involved like there's all this so there's that sort of perspective gaining phase and then you get to this phase or at least i did um, where it's almost like this bird's eye view of like 
what's going on and just how terrible it is that we do this to the animals. And I remember for me, that was when um, I, I was watching the footage from our Central Valley meat investigation back in 2012. And I had just moved back to Southern California where it's very sunny and beautiful. Not today because very smoky, although not as very far. And, um, and I remember spending my day watching footage of like, I'm not kidding. Like so many hours of footage. Like I had, there were days I was doing like 18 hours of like, footage and logging footage and writing arguments and trying to get this, you know, to where it needed to be. Um, and I remember driving in the early evening. It was very beautiful, like very sunny. And there's these people like young adults, like playing kickball in the park. And I'm thinking to myself, like, we are such a bizarre species that we spend our days. Some of us spend our days like literally blowing the brains out of cows all day, every day. And some of us spend our days like playing kickball in the park, you know, like it just was so bizarre. Like it gave me that out of body feeling. Um, and I think that level of perspective, like you only get it when you really let yourself kind of sit in the chaos and absorb it and learn from it um, and kind of realize, okay, you know, there's something really wrong. Like we really took a, a, bad turn somewhere in, you know, our, our society and as a species, what it is we do um, to these animals. Uh, and I don't, I think there's something really uniquely valuable about investigations that has that potential to kind of get you there. I don't feel like I would have gotten there without sitting through all that footage. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you said that earlier about how um, there's just that, weird disconnect between the two worlds almost uh, the fact that we can be very compassionate very loving very familial um, and go out and play kickball and spend time with our families and do all these things that show the better nature of human nature and then you have on the other hand the darker part of that being how we treat animals in our society and how we treat beings who we view as lesser than and mm-hmm. use for their meat or the products that they produce for humans to consume in some way. It's really bizarre. And I actually had that feeling of just um, feeling really weird inside, I guess you could say uh, from when I would end an investigation and I spent so much time in that world where things were just turned on their head and people were doing these horrible things to animals. And I saw it on a daily basis. So I would see it for months at a time and I would become another one of the workers there. And I would just be witnessing all of this happening. And then I would end an investigation and go back home and then just, you know, go on a date with my girlfriend or spend time with my family. And it would just be so weird to get into that adjustment period of, Oh, this is, you know, normal life again. Whereas the other side of it was just crazy insane where there was constant pressure and constant trauma being, you know, um, enacted towards these animals. And I would be witnessing all that. And then to just go from that one day to the next day, just living life as normal. It's, it's really hard to just um, get back into that 
period of normalcy again before going back out to an investigation as an undercover investigator. Yeah, it's like you can't reconcile the two worlds, you know. Exactly. Like, it reminds me of, you know, soldiers coming back from war. And I feel like most of us don't think, oh, you know, there are war zones all over the country, all over the world. Yeah. Um, these, these animal issues. And, you know, I think the difference is with war, it, it may not feel for, to the individual soldiers like this is going to be, you know, over tomorrow. But we expect for there to be a nice ending to the war, you know? Um, and I think when it comes to the systems that just continue with the animals, it's like, okay, more animals are being put into these systems, more sort of deprivation and violence. And it's really just kind of a jarring sense of reality, you know? Yeah, it's really bizarre. And okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's sure. That I was just going to say, you know, it's it's crazy the things that we accept about what's going on in our society right now. Yeah, I think that's a good place to sort of pivot in the conversation, and I want to hear some stories from you. Uh, let's let's get into, um, you know, okay, you know, we got up to you're a kid who cares about this kind of work, this kind of issue. And you're learning about this issue. And like you said, you, you want to jump head first into things. How did that happen for you? Like, how did you decide this is what I want to do and then start doing it? And was it, you know, what you expected? Um, you know, did, did whatever drew you to it become that whatever you hoped to happen become a reality for you? Or what was that like? Right. Well, I guess starting out, I was just in a, a place where, as, as a kid growing up, I was exposed to all types of different situations that, you know, um, in some cases, children just shouldn't be exposed to, um, and really intense um, environment that I did live in, where I would see, you know, people being mistreated, and animals being treated as, you know, lesser than and um, beings that were viewed as lesser than. Mm -hmm. So I had that feeling of a sense of, you know, justice instilled in me at a young age. I would watch, you know, cartoons where there would always be the hero who would come out and, you know, protect the weak and the downtrodden. And I identified a lot with that. I wanted to be that type of person. And I think it's, it, it's more so like I wanted to be that type of person. I, I also wish that that type of person would have been there for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that affects the way I relate to animals to this day. But as I grew up, there were a lot of responsibilities that I took on um, with pro helping to provide financially for my family and, you know, all kinds of life things that would pop up that really uh, drew me away from that sense of, you know, justice. It, it came down to, I have to do these things to make sure that my family survives and thrives. So I did end up, you know, in this dead end retail sales job where I was working for four years straight there. And I felt like this was not what I wanted to do. And I had all these ideas and I had watched, um, several documentaries over the course of those years where 
they featured animal cruelty investigations. And I always had this really deep connection with animals because out of all the humans I interacted with, animals would always, you know, not rush to hurt you in any way or anything like that, unless you, you know, would provoke them. Um, and any animals I encountered were very gentle and sweet and loving. And it was just, it seemed in their nature. So to see them being mistreated in that way was really jarring for me. And I just felt like I had to do something about it, but I didn't know what exactly. I ended up watching a lot of documentaries and seeing that undercover investigator footage and then thinking maybe that could be something that I could do. And I assessed my strengths as a person and seeing what I could possibly be exposed to all of the violence and the poor conditions at factory farms and that whole general atmosphere. I felt like I've I've lived a pretty rough life so far. So I think that I could be that person to be in that environment and be able to withstand it and be that champion for the animals because I felt out of all of the issues that I could possibly get involved in with that concept of trying to save the world, I felt like that where that was where I could be the most effective. So I ended up looking into that and trying to get into being an undercover investigator and then I wanted to be hands-on and jump headfirst into that world. And that was what I ended up doing, luckily. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I just want to kind of highlight the point that you're making, because I think it's a really important one that kind of has universal application um, when it comes to, you know, kids growing up and adults even, I think, this idea that you can take having difficulties in your life and having circumstances that are really hard and you react to it by saying, I'm going to, you know, help others. I'm going to, as you say, be the champion. And I think there's something, it's not like, I think that narrative sometimes gets sort of sold to us as though it's just this, well, this person's very nice and they're very altruistic or whatever. But I, you know, I see there's some of that to it. I see that. But what I see more here is this sense of of power, right? Like being able to take back your own, you know, kind of identity and power, and be able to do with it, um, you know, what is really going to make you feel like you're here and you're doing what you should be doing um, with your life. And of course, tons of other benefits come from it, um, you know, for for the animals, for other people, etc. But I think there's there's just something so strong about that, um, that, you know, if I were, you know, 15 years old listening to this, I would be thinking, oh, how could I look at my life situation and come up with a way to apply that idea? You know, there's so many different ways you could, you could apply it, but it's a mindset in the first place that I think is really unique and interesting, um, you know, in terms of kind of how you, you put those pieces together. Yeah, it really is a mindset. It, I definitely experienced that when I was younger and before I became an undercover investigator because a lot of children just have that viewpoint where they do want to see good in the world because, I mean, a lot of children are good at heart. So they want to see that reflected in the world that they live in. 
And as they get exposed to things that they know are not right, because they have that sense of justice instilled at them in, in them mm-hmm. in, at a young age, they want to do something about it. And they see all this media that portrays these heroes doing good in the world. They want to be that type of person. But when you get to a certain point, when you're in your late teens, in your early 20s, you're just fed this narrative that that's not as important as the life that you need to cultivate for yourself. You need to go out and get a job. You need to go out and do all these things as a young adult in order to lay the foundation down for your own life. And instead of, you know, bringing yourself down with all of the things that are going on in the world, you need to focus on yourself and try to be happy and make a happy family. And that's your purpose in life. And I think that that is a reason why a lot of people will shy away from, you know, these larger issues, specifically when it comes to animal cruelty and factory farms, because they're fed that narrative. But there are different ways that you can go about it. And I am really glad that I have the opportunity to still, you know, do these things that I have to do as, as an adult and still, you know, help out my family in many ways uh, financially and, and, and support them as well. But I don't have to compromise my integrity while doing that because you can still care about all these issues because you're living in that world where all these issues are affecting that world, regardless of whatever bubble you try to, you know, put yourself in. You're existing in it. And, you know, when you become a parent, your children are exposed to it as well. So you can, you know, feed into that same mindset that we all have to worry about ourselves or you can cultivate a future where everyone cares about everyone else. That's the kind of world I want to live in. So I will definitely, when I have children, explain that to them, that they exist in this world and what they do in the world affects it. Yeah, it matters, right? And I feel like, yeah, this, this is going back to this sort of fight or flight idea that we talked about earlier. And I think the way that you're explaining the narrative about kind of create the bubble, do do for you, you know, kind of disconnect from things that might bring you down is that false dichotomy there that like, oh, this stuff will bring you down. Go over here, you won't you won't get brought down. And I don't think you're right. I think this brings you up more because, you know, it makes you feel is you know, sometimes I think just the process of doing something hard and challenging yourself you know, really kind of gives you that high, it makes you feel like you have accomplished something, you've done something, add it to, to an issue like this, which is really, you know, kind of daunting if you're on the outside of it. Um, and you are able to, you know, really bring yourself up through being able to be involved. And of course, you know, also do all these other things, as you say, kind of check the boxes of being an adult and, but integrate those values, bring it all in together. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's hear about your your first investigation. You know, I'll tell you something. Like, you know, we don't have to go through everything that you ever did in the field. <laughs> right. Uh, but, there, you know, there's something for me watching investigation footage over the years and working with investigators. There's always something about every investigation that is new and sort of odd that kind of adds some texture to the story um, or that sticks with me. 
after the fact. And I don't know if you kind of have that same feeling, um, but if they're, look at this kind of like an impressionistic way, right? Like, let's say, okay, your first investigation, you know, basic facts, what was that all about? But what really kind of hangs in the air afterwards for you? Right. Well, my first investigation was into a broiler chicken factory farm in Temperanceville, Virginia. And that was about two years ago. And I had some type of idea from, of course, watching undercover investigations footage in the past about what I could possibly expect, but I had no idea until I set foot onto that broiler chicken factory farm and saw what it was actually like. I, I was not prepared for my first time stepping into a barn and being hit in the face with this really strong ammonia smell. And that's the first thing I'll always jump back to in my memory is that the first sense that was assailed for me was just that sense of smell. And I remember after like a couple of days working there uh, while undercover, I would leave the farm site and then just uh, inhale and then exhale. And I could hear my breathing because the ammonia fumes had affected my lungs so badly. So that was just me being in those barns for several hours at a time. But imagine what it would be like to live in those barns for 40 something odd days. It it would be insane for all those chickens to be exposed to those conditions, but that was the reality for them. And that's their only reality. That's their whole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what they're born for and raised to be is just, you know, just another cog in the wheel for uh, an exploitative industry that is just using them for their meat. So it's really jarring seeing that reality for those chickens and seeing it just firsthand and then walking through a barn and, seeing how tightly packed in they were to the point where I could barely walk amongst them because there was not even enough room for a person to wade through all the chickens who were packed into that one barn. And there were about, there were over five barns. So imagine just one barn being packed like that, but there were even more than that, a handful of barns there with, thousands and thousands of chickens. It was insane. I remember uh, being taken aback by just seeing how casually a worker would pick up a chicken and then just break their neck and just throw them onto the ground. And just the flippant way that they went about it was crazy for me because that was the first time I'd ever seen anyone kill any living being in front of me like that. So that was my first, you know, impression of that world is that it was so detached and disconnected and unlike anything I'd experienced before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a first investigation too, you know, just to be thrown right into the middle of it all, um, is it what you expected? Was there anything that really you were like, this is not what I anticipated? 
I think that I really got that feeling when I witnessed just how the workers would treat the chickens who were sickly or, or injured in some way. And they were considered disposable. And whether they were chicks or whether they were uh, larger chickens uh, nearing the end of their life cycle in the industry, they would just break their necks and throw them into a bucket. And I did see some chicks who were handled in a way where they were improperly euthanized or killed um, by workers who weren't really concerned with, you know, making sure that they were entirely, you know, euthanized or insensible or what have you. And they would just toss them in the bucket with, along with all the other birds who would be piled into that bucket. And I think that that also carried over into the way that they would go about killing them that would be easier for the workers to conduct their jobs. Uh, something that really stood out to me at that broiler chicken factory farm was when I witnessed workers walking through the barn with a plastic pipe and a metal nail affixed to the end of it. And they would just walk around hitting and striking ch chicks in their bodies with those weapons in an attempt to call them or whatnot, but it was entirely ineffective. And I witnessed chicks go flying left and right when they would be struck by these, these objects and they would just writhe on the ground afterwards and the workers would, you know, go do their thing and then circle back and then, after leaving the chicks to writhe for a certain amount of time, they would then attempt to properly euthanize them and then throw them in the bucket. It was really heartbreaking to see baby chicks suffer that way. Yeah, yeah, it's especially hard when it's the babies, I feel like. And that's the part of that investigation that sticks with me too, um, is, you know, especially the, the one person who was impaling the chicks with that nail um you know that to me and especially because they didn't have any even you know even pretextual kind of reason like there was no way they could have justified it because then they would they would bend down and pick up the chick um and throw throw it in the bucket right i mean it wasn't like oh this is just making it easier so i don't have to bend down they they would stab the chick and then bend down and pick it up that to me like it's not even the goriness of it it's not even the violence of it it's just the fact that a, a person could get to a point where they see the world in such a way that that is fine right it's the casual violence i think is the most dangerous yeah yeah casual violence i think that's right i think that's that's the, that's the stuff that kind of sticks around because it, it makes you question your own sanity a little bit right it makes you feel like this is, i'm supposed to see this as normal <laughs> you know right. how often that happens you have to kind of keep saying this is not okay this should not be considered normal it's really interesting because the i guess uh owner of the farm site uh when the chicks were first delivered 
I remember there was one chick who was um, running around um, who had fallen out of one of the trays. Uh, they were being transported in, in the truck that arrived on the site. And the chick was just on the ground and the owner picked up the chick and then showed me the chick. And I'm guessing he wanted me to put the chick in the barn, but he said something in passing that really stuck out, um, which was they're really cute. Right. As he was holding the chick out to me. And it was just so bizarre that he could see them that way, that they are cute. They're very adorable. And, I spent a lot of days, you know, holding them in my hands and petting them. And the fact that they were just raising them to kill or even the fact that they would walk around and impale them on nails after, you know, knowing that, you know, they're cute there. You see them this way and yet you do these things to them. It's really crazy. Yeah. 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 That reminds me of years ago, um, another investigator for us did an investigation of another broiler facility. And the thing that really sticks with me to this day about that investigation um, is a similar thing here, which is that one of the workers who was, um, you know, participating in a lot of the violent acts, which, you know, I would just have to be clear that doing all these investigations as an organization, we know these are not isolated things, right? This is kind of how things are in these industries, but the crazy part about it was that he had pet chickens at his house. Um, And he was talking about how he used to, you know, hand feed them and bring them water and they were like disabled chickens. And then of course, all day he's spending his time, you know, basically brutalizing and killing animals. Like that's, it's that sort of weird, like, impossibility um, or seeming impossibility that kind of sticks um, in some of the, in some of these stories. And that's what I was kind of talking about earlier, where it's like, you go through this process where at first it's, Oh my God, it's so traumatic. Please don't make me watch it. And then it's some of these grays, you know, where you're like, Oh, there's, there's, these people are very com- complex people, you know, and it's, they're, it's, you know, part of their environment. And it's, there's a lot of, weird norms that that allow for that kind of compartmentalization it's so so bizarre yeah um i actually you know i had a time when i was uh watching like a cooking show with my girlfriend and she's really into those um because she's she really likes cooking and it was like a worst cooks in america i think where they were there was this episode where they had to cook a live lobster and Mm -hmm. every single contestant had some type of issue with it. And they were just like, they're looking at me. I can see their eyes. They're alive. And they would apologize when they put the lobster into the steaming water to boil them alive. And they had so much remorse. They had so much disgust with it that they didn't want to do it, but it was normalized by the I guess the hosts of the show were just telling them, you just have to get it over with. You know, they were laughing at them. And it's crazy that that's just the norm that is being pushed on people when their first reaction is that it's wrong. Yeah. You know, this is something I've always, I, I do not have an answer to this question, but why 
do people pressure other people into being more violent than they want to be? (laughs) (laughs) Like, where is that coming from? You know, I remember exactly that story that you're telling. I, you know, thinking about that experience for like, you know, dissection in high school or whatever. Um, You know, there's a number of examples you can, you can think about that. It's, that's the same exact story. And then there's always some player in the game that's like, no, you have to do it anyway. You know, just just do it. Just override that feeling. Why do we do that to each other? <laughs> what is the point of that? Yeah, it's like forcing ourselves to be desensitized. And it's interesting because I saw a lot of that during my over the course of my career as an undercover investigator. And I saw it at that brother chicken factory farm in Virginia where uh, the same worker who was one of the workers who would use the plastic pipe and the metal nail to impale the chicks uh, also mentioned, had an offhand comment at one point where he said to me, the chickens have feelings and you have to make sure you treat them right. And that's how they grow and things like that. And then he would go and do something like that. And I saw the same thing at a fish hatchery in Maine, where I conducted that investigation into um, that Cook um, fish factory farm, uh, where they were, you know, growing the fish there. And there were really small salmon fingerlings would be the technical term for it, but they were just really small fish babies. And they were swimming in this large tank. And they they would die off in pretty high numbers within the small tank. The only way that those dead bodies could be removed would be if workers would remove those dead bodies. So the workers had already commented um, in the past how there just wasn't enough time to get all of the dead out of the tanks. And that would cause fungus to grow from the dead bodies and infect the live baby fish who would be present in those tanks So we were just constantly fighting against that, you know, shortage of time that could be taken to ensure that these babies were not dying Mm -hmm. in these multitudes. And I remember working alongside with one of the workers and he was apologizing to the fish there. And it was really interesting because usually you see people having remorse for causing harm to, you know, the stereotypically cute animals, which would be baby calves or baby piglets and whatnot, but never really fish. But these workers had worked with them for some, in some cases, years, several months at a time, and they got to know these fish as living beings. So it was really, really intriguing for this worker to just be apologizing to these fish where you could barely even see their faces. You could barely even, you know, tell like they, they don't have expressions. They don't vocalize, but that worker felt remorse because he knew that they were living beings, that they were newborns basically. And he felt bad. He felt some type of remorse for the fact that they were dying for reasons that were outside of their control. And yet he worked at a fish hatchery, a fish factory farm. Yeah. And and then, you know, 
just override that. Why do we do that? It's just so mind blowing. So, you know, that investigation, the thing that sort of sticks with me the most is the quote that you recorded about being desensitized from one of the workers. Yeah, the manager at the time there, and he had been there for, I think, at least five years or more and working there. And he stated that, and it sticks with me to this day, I will always quote it because it was just so indicative of the problem with animal agriculture as a whole is that um, it really sucked and bummed him out, he said, to kill the fish the way that they do because they just suffocate and it's really rough. But in the end, you just get desensitized. And it was just so telling it in it was coming straight from a worker in the industry. It wasn't us saying this is how they feel. It was one of the workers themselves telling us how it is and the truth behind it all. Yeah. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, the, the context is, you know, they're throwing them all over the place, <laughs> you know, right. like say, putting them in this, this barrel to suffocate. And then that acknowledgement almost seems like, it would be against his self-interest to say it, but he says it anyway. That to me is like so interesting because it shows that he's not really desensitized, you know? Yeah. Like it's a, it's a battle. It's an internal battle. Yeah. And um, the last thing that I would mention with that is that um, it's really laid out cut and dry with what the, um, I guess the, was he wasn't really the owner of the facility because it was owned by Cook Aquaculture, but he was, you know, presiding manager over everyone at the facility. Um, and he was passing by me as I was looking at a bucket filled with dead fish and just piled up high. And he saw me looking at the fish and just standing there. And he walked by and he just said, yeah, it's that's how it is. You raise them, then you kill them. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, really telling. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, maybe the difference is like I sit firmly in the camp of this is completely not necessary, you know, and I think maybe culturally we're kind of told not just that this is fine, but that there's something, you know, that we have to do in order to, I don't know, live. Um you know, and I think that that's where maybe the the work is on our part is to to make it clear that look, we absolutely do not need to have these institutions, these industries. Um, and from that point of view, now look at this and and evaluate and you know sort of determine whether this is something that we can all, you know, as a society think goes along with our values, which I, I you know would say that it does not. And I also think if you look at people's knowledge and understanding of this, of this industry or these industries, um, you know, it's pretty low. And that's because of the, the effort of the industry to keep it secret. And I think that's, what's so interesting about investigations. It's the way to get that counterpoint out there. It's the way to get that raw data out into the world so people can actually understand what's going on. So they even get to that point of being able to have an opinion on it and to really ask themselves whether this, you know, squares with their value system. Right. And can I just say how crazy it is that 
we have to do this in order to figure out what is actually going on on these factory farm sites that I had to go and be an undercover investigator for two years. I had to, you know, uh, go on to these factory farm sites. I had to, you know, get a job there. I had to work there for a certain amount of months and be away from, you know, friends and family for a very long time and document all those things while avoiding suspicion from people who would most likely, you know, either kick me out or in some cases there could be worse scenarios that could happen and be in all of that in order for people to know this is what happened at this place where you get your you know, animal products from. It's crazy that we have to go through all these hoops in order to do that. Absolutely absurd, right? That we're in a situation. And I think to me, you know, the fact that the industry is so opaque and that it, it, it got that way by design um, it's so interesting, like looking at the history of it, looking at the kind of politics of it and the law and all of the kind of reasons that we got into this place makes the contrast with, you know, nonprofit organizations that are funded by people who want to use their, you know, their little bit of money that they have to give away to do the best good that they can, the most good that they can. Um, you know, we go up against these massive industries and, you go into these places, you know, and, and kind of walk the coals, metaphorically speaking, but very close to literally speaking, um, to be able to bring this information that really can't be obtained in any other way to the public on an issue that affects most people multiple times a day. You know, the fact that that's the exception, that's the little narrow crack in the door um, to an industry that's otherwise totally shut out from public view and public discourse in any real meaningful way. I mean, the the amount of energy that goes into the industry developing narratives to make everyone think they should just buy more animal products, <laughs> the <laughs> amount of money that goes into that. You know, can you imagine if we didn't have this video footage to really show the other now, we're going to say the other side of the story, but it's not the other side of the story. It is the story, right? It is the actual raw truth of what's going on. Right. And I mean, these are corporations that are, you know, these really large like conglomerates that are making millions and millions of billions of dollars um, off of, you know, feeding these false narratives to the American public and convincing people that they need to continue buying the product that, is causing a lot of these issues that are being present in our environment with uh, workers being subjected to horrible conditions as we've seen, I mean, now with uh, all these slaughter plants that are getting all these, you know, COVID-19 infections with these workers who are being forced to work in there to produce this product that we don't even really need. Um, so it's crazy. And the fact that people can think that all these corporations operating in their own self-interest is going to produce this great result for everyone else. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the news item just came out today saying that it was the meat industry that drafted large portions of the executive order that Trump wrote to keep the slaughterhouses open during COVID, even despite wow. all these issues. Um, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't shock us, but it also should shock us, right? It should outrage us. 
um, that, that, that we're living in. And exactly right, what you're saying is, it's just so mind blowing that the the way to get this information, you know, involves you <laughs> doing all of these things undercover for two years. Um, all right, let's get let's get into your dairy investigations. Right. Well, that's always a subject that is really near and dear to my heart because of how amazing cows are. I love cows so much from the bottom of my heart because they are so gentle and they're so adorable. And to see what they have to go through on a daily basis, like right now, as we speak, there are cows who are being used for their milk, having their babies like torn away from them. It's really heartbreaking. And I never really had a sense of what cows actually went through until I found myself on a dairy factory farm in Pennsylvania when I was at Martin Farms. And I had actually, I just um, for context, I was vegetarian before I became an undercover investigator. And once I joined Animal Outlook, I adopted a vegan diet. And that was before I'd ever set foot on a dairy factory farm. So I still didn't have a clear idea of why it was so important to not eat dairy products or not consume dairy products in any way. And I finally got that idea when I saw what these cows are living through, because a lot of people are under the impression that since the cows aren't killed on the site, that they are not suffering or it's not as bad. They're just, you know, giving their milk freely and willingly uh, <laughs> that is intended for their babies and they're having a happy time and they're free to graze and roam. And that could not be further from the reality of the situation, which is when I was in the milking area, which the industry refers to as a parlor, <laughs> as though it's something that is very pleasant to walk into. But being there, I the smells were overwhelming, the amount of feces that was pooling in the back of the milking area. And the fumes that that was giving off the fact that the cows had to walk through that in order to get into that area to be milked. And all the while there are workers screaming at them, shouting at them, striking them because they're these large animals. They're trying to cram into these closed quarters so that they can attach these tools, these metal tools to their udders and extract milk from them, from their bodies that is intended for babies who the cows have had taken away from them. And those babies are stuffed into these calf crates and the calf crates just line the um, factory farm site, the grounds of the, the site. And they're just in these lines, in these rows, and these calves are kept away from each other and away from their mothers, and they're just sitting there waiting for the artificial milk that the um, the workers will put into those buckets for them. And then they'll drink out of that, and that will be their day. And not only that, but they'll also, you know, any interaction that they'll have with worker will either be them receiving some type of vaccine and being, you know, poked or prodded in their shoulder in order to deliver that, or they will await the hot iron that will burn their part of their skulls away 
in order to get rid of the bud or the horn that might grow from their head. So they have that to look forward to, but that's their existence on a daily basis. Um, The cows are constantly herded into that milking area. They're milked, their babies are taken from them. The babies are exposed to this cruel standard practice of disbudding or dehorning. And that is factory, dairy factory farming. That is the reality of it. Not the happy grazing cows and Farmer John going out and milking the cows and the babies are free to roam with their mothers. It's that bleak existence that dairy cows have to live through on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's so, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about how few people um, really know the basic sort of touch points of that story, right? I mean, everything you've said is not the you know, let's say outside the box kind of violence um, that of course you did find at that dairy. Um, but it, it is just the, the reality of dairy and not even, you know, big, large scale dairy. It doesn't matter what scale. I mean, it's just the way that the industry works. Um, and I, I think about, you know, you talked about the milking parlor, um, you know, which you said sounds very pleasant. I also get this, you know, kind of Victorian, um, feeling about, you know, very fancy and formal, um, feeling about that. It's very quaint. Um, and it it makes me think about all of these, these kind of twists of language that the industry has created and the stories that we've all grown up with about how wholesome this kind of thing is. And in reality, I think when you get away from eating dairy, you're like, it is crazy that we drink the milk of another species. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy. You know, and I think, again, it's only through investigations like yours that we're able to start breaking that kind of unanimity um, of the stories that are, that are out there. Yeah. The drinking of a cow's milk, I Cannot imagine ever doing that ever again, especially after what I saw. Um, And what you said before um, about how this isn't, you know, these aren't isolated cases. This is a systemic issue. And I got a feel of that because I, a lot of what I saw at Martin Farms in Pennsylvania, I also saw across the country in a dairy factory farm in California at Dick Van Dam Dairy, which was my last investigation of my career, where I saw the same issues being present there. Of course, there were like different scenarios of some type of abuse that would occur to the cows, depending on whether we're looking at Martin Farms or Dick Van Dam, but they could almost be interchangeable with the practices that would go on there. It was the exact same, the exact same system. It's not an exception to like the rule. It is the rule that that is how dairy factory farming is. Yeah. Let's talk about the the one sort of weird thing that happened that we didn't expect to see at both Martin and DVD, which is the hip clamp. Um, That is something that really sticks with me because, you know, that's, occasion number one and occasion number two of me ever seeing that, you know, where a lot of the other things were really 
terrible and violent, um, you know, but we've seen it before, you know, where this, I think, is really off the charts in terms of its, of its suffering, um, you know, infliction of suffering, but it's also just so kind of odd that we would see in, you know, the, the, in these two investigations on two different coasts, the use, the misuse of this particular device. Right. Um, that's really, that says a lot that um, that's the, you know, first and second time that you've seen that from a dairy investigation, considering that you've seen quite a lot of investigations. Um, so it's really interesting, but yeah, that I, I had never seen any of what I saw um, before in my lifetime and being present at Martin farms and seeing it for the first time was um, very impactful for me because I cared so much for the cows there. And I had to watch as a manager affixed that really um, medieval looking device. It was all rusted to um, the first time that I'd seen the manager place that hip clamp onto the cow's hips because she was unable to stand. She had, you know, exhausted herself, um, whether it be from, you know, a variety of different factors, the conditions that she had to suffer through or the daily milkings or whatnot, but she had collapsed and he affixed that metal clamp, that device on her hips. And then I watched as he took the chain that was attached to the hip clamp and attached it to the tractor bucket. And then he went into the tractor and just lifted this cow up by her hips. She was dangling by her hip bones and she was not standing. She could not stand. It got to the point where he lifted her completely up until the back half of her body was suspended in the air and the front half of her body, her face and her front legs were in the dirt in feces and old hay and whatnot. And then he proceeded to drag her around the barn and I guess that was his twisted attempt to get her to stand and get her back to standing position. But all he did was frighten her and cause her a great deal of pain. Imagine having your face dragged through dirt and feces and possible concrete underneath all of that. And then he just let her back down. He lowered the tractor bucket and he just said, you know, something along the lines of, you know, she's, she's no good. Um, and that's how she had to live her life as being referred to as damaged goods, being dragged through the dirt and, and fecal matter. Um, it, it was really sad to see that for the very first time and see that that was how they were treating the cows there because that wasn't the first time that they had done it. It was just the first time I was there to document it for other people. Mm -hmm. that this is what they do. Yeah. You know that, so that Martin Farms investigation really, there were so many really 
bizarre, intense parts of oh, it. Yeah. And then overall kind of gave me a feeling like a horror movie, like a <laughs> go back to this sort of retro thing. Unlike the Victorian era um, feeling that I got from Milking Parlor, it gave me like a, you know, early days of surgery kind of like scary metal implements kind of horror movie feeling. Yeah. But I'll tell you of all the of all the crazy things that that investigation show that you're able to get on on camera, um, that moment after that cow is, you know, put back down on the on the ground from that hip clamp incident, the visual of her, like obviously, suffering and just unable to, you know, even kind of function in her own body. Um, that's what sticks with me from that investigation. Like that there is something very compelling about that visually. You can really, you know, sort of see what she's experiencing just by watching the video. Yeah. I remember the look in her eyes and you could see all the white of her eyes and of course her iris um, sitting in the middle of it. But uh, just for perspective on that, when cows are relaxed and they're secure in their surroundings, you will see them with, you know, that cutesy expression, which would be, you can see just their uh, pupils and the irises and you can't see the whites of their eyes. The only time you're able to see the whites of their eyes is if they are distressed or if they are uncomfortable and they are on alert. So that knowing that, context of it and the fact that she was just lying there and you could see the whites of her eyes you could see how heavily she was breathing from the footage being there in person and seeing that and not being able to help her in any way because she's in that system it was really mm -hmm. hard, hard for me yeah yeah and then here you go i mean you did cook in between but then you turn around and go to california and you see an even more dramatic use of that misuse of that hip clamp device. Yeah, that situation was insane to watch. Uh, it was uh, one of the times where I was most on edge uh, throughout my career because of what happened. Um, so there, in that situation, there had been a cow who had uh, collapsed behind the milking aisle and the way that this operated, this milking aisle operated was that they were automatic gates or automated gates that would keep the cows in place uh, as they were being milked. And then once they were done being milked, they would be released by the automatic automated gates by a worker pressing a button and triggering the gates to open. So then the cows would immediately leave the aisle and go down this narrow corridor and back to their corrals. So there had been a cow who collapsed behind where the automated gate would lift up. And she was trapped there because she had no ability to stand or anything like that. And I notified one of the workers and he stated that she would just be left there just to leave her alone. So there were already cows in the milking aisle and they were waiting behind that automated gate. And I was so frightened for her because I knew it was going to happen. But the worker 
press the button and trigger the automated gate rising up. And then all the cows who were in the aisle ended up going into that area where she was trapped in, where she was just lying there helplessly as the cows inadvertently trampled her. And they, I, I did witness a cow step on her leg as they were leaving. And clearly that was going to happen, but the worker was not concerned that this cow would be trampled. So the cow was stuck there and ended up backing up the milking aisle to the point where the, the cows who were present there could not leave. So that's when she became an inconvenience because she was halting production. And that's when they brought in the tractor and they brought in the hip clamp and they were going to do that, but they were going to do that whole process that I witnessed at Martin Farms. But the problem was that she was stuck in the aisle, which obviously a tractor wouldn't be able to fit in there. So what their solution was is that they took a high pressure hose, a large high pressure hose and sprayed her down, sprayed her in the face, in the body. And I watched her crawl desperately through feces and the water and being sprayed the entire time and just dragging her body across the concrete in order to get away from that. And she eventually pulled her body to a position where they would have access to her. So they attached the hip clamp to her hips much like they did at Martin Farms um, with the workers there. And they took the chain from the hip clamp and they affixed it to a tractor that was positioned on a on the opposite side of the wall that was separating the milking area from the rest of the farm site. And, and that's a pretty large wall, right? I mean, we're talking like 10, 12 feet, something like that? Yeah, um, probably around, I would say, you know, 20 feet because... I had walked us alongside that wall many times to enter the milking area. So it was pretty tall. There was no way I would be able to like jump up and reach it or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So the cow was prepared in this way to um, have some type of scenario where the tractor would like drag her or something like that, which was what happened at Martin Farms. But the difference between this is that they had nowhere to take, to drag her through because they couldn't drag her through the narrow corridor, which the only other option would be, you know, put her back in the milking aisle. And that was not something that they were going to do. So they ended up attaching the chain to the tractor bucket and lifting her out of the milking area until she was completely suspended in the air. And then they dragged her body over the edge of the wall over the top of the wall that was at least you know 20 feet high um and then they dangled her in the air and all the while they're doing this there are cows in the milking area just watching this and i was watching alongside them because i was holding my breath watching her dangling in the air like that suspended from her hips a metal hip clamp locked around her hip bones and i was just seeing that she was suspended by like that one chain that was attached to the tractor bucket. So I just was holding my breath, hoping that one chain wouldn't come loose because if it did, I can only imagine what 
would be the result of that. She would end up tumbling down to the ground below. And seeing that, it was just insane. They, they eventually lowered her down to the ground, but there could have been so many different outcomes to that. It, it, it was really frightening to watch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just hearing you describe it is so intense. I can't imagine that next level of actually experiencing that and not knowing, you know, what's going to happen next. And even just, you know, the use of that hip clamp. I mean, you're talking about metal on bone, basically, um, you know, in terms of lifting this animal's, you know, big heavy animal up by their their hip bones um, is just really the the... <laughs> The, the intensity of that whole experience and process, I think it comes through in your description and it, I just can't even imagine, you know, that next level, which I guess brings, brings me to my question of why could you, did you possibly make the decision to leave the field after that investigation? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I still grapple with that to this day. Um, you know, I, I haven't told you and I haven't told anyone, but I, after I left the field, um, the first like several months or so, I was just thinking, you know, there's gotta be a way I can get back in. I, Mm -hmm. I took a break. I took some time, but I have to go back. I'm the only one who can do these. I have all this experience. Maybe I can go back in somehow. And I, you know, had gone through a name change at that point. And then um, we were gearing up to uh, possibly release the um, Dick Van Dam Dairy investigation. And my name was like all out there, but I was still trying to figure out ways I could go back, (laughs) Um, which it's something that I don't, I've come to terms with it at this point and I don't have that problem anymore, but I remember going through all those like hoops in my mind of tr- trying to figure out a way to get back in because there's such a strong sense of duty when you're in the field and a sense that you have this higher purpose, you have this mission in mind and you have to be that one on the front lines. You have to be that one doing it because nobody else will do it. And it's a really lonely feeling when you're out there for months at a time. It's, it's a really heavy guilt and a burden to carry. Um, And I really felt that at my last investigation, but it's also fighting against that idea that there's but so much you can take and you want to be at a hundred percent for the animals. And throughout the entirety of that investigation I was feeling the the effects of the whole two years I'd been in the field and it was really wearing down on me especially during that investigation where I was seeing cruelty and abuse towards these animals on a near daily basis I got to the point where I realized I can't do this again I can't do this another investigation and possibly get exposed to the same things. I'm not at 100% anymore, and I don't want to compromise the integrity of future investigations by you having this selfish sense of, it has to be me. Um, so that was what influenced my decision that I had to step away from it 
and not continue to push myself because it wouldn't be fair to me and it wouldn't have been fair to the animals. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's bringing this conversation full circle from where we started, you know, in terms of really having that vision of being able to sort of step in and do this really difficult and important work and then kind of exiting that and in completing the hero's journey, you know, and, and bringing that, that back. And now you're in a role where you're able to tell your story, you know, come out out of the shadows into the light here and, and tell your story and tell the animal's story and give those perspectives that I feel like, you know, you really can only get by being in the field. I think the rest of us can watch the footage and be, you know, really, really changed, um, you know, enhanced in our thinking about the world and the way we think about ourselves and, you know, our relationships with others and things. But I think having that firsthand point of view and perspective is something that's, you know, kind of uniquely valuable to bring back um, to society, you know, and that kind of closes that, that arc for you and you're able to mentor, um, you know, others like you. Um, and hopefully inspire people to do um, similar work or to do work that, you know, is as fulfilling to them, um, you know, may or may not be as dirty, smelly, violent, dangerous, um, <laughs> but meaningful um, and impactful as well. And I think that, you know, that's just sort of part of the story, you know, for, for doing these investigations. Yeah, definitely. Um, what comes to mind for me is just like um, the way that I'm continuing to be in that fight for the animals and still be in this world, but in a different role. And, and it makes me think of something because I cannot imagine myself going back to pretending that none of this ever happened and going back to a normal life where I guess you could say I you know, prioritize my own, you know, happiness and well-being and focus on other things and just tune out the world of, you know, these are horrible things that are happening that I witnessed and experienced and I saw firsthand and just go back to a regular nine to five or something like that. I cannot Mm -hmm. imagine myself doing that ever. I cannot be in that role. And it makes me think of like the matrix where, um, there's that pivotal scene where the uh, one of the main characters is just like uh, presents to Neo, um, who is this person who is realizing that they are in this alternate reality and this is like the true reality of it. And they have this knowledge now and they can either take the red pill or the blue pill. And one of the pills will just throw them back into that world where they will not have any recollection of anything that happened and they'll forget everything that they've seen, or they can take the other pill that will like open their minds and set them in that world to where they can fight to do something about it. And I definitely took the pill where, you know, you do something about it and other people have that chance to do that as well. And they have to realize that you can either have one or two paths but if you go down that path where you can do something, there are so many different things that you can do. You don't have to be an undercover investigator. You don't have to, you know, do the extreme. There are different levels to it and anyone can affect change on some type of level. It's just that you have to believe that you can do it. 
Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, most of us at least would like to think that, you know, we want to see the matrix. You know what I mean? We wouldn't <laughs> actually want to go back to our, you know, um, fake world or world that's really cordoned off from the reality of things. And, you know, I, I don't think that's inconsistent with happiness and fulfillment, right? It might not be happier than happy or lighter than happy, but it's maybe better in a way that is both happy and has more complicated, you know, kind of feelings of achievement and hard work and, you know, growth and process, you know, that's, that's more rich and more fulfilling overall um, than if we had just, you know, said, no, I don't, I don't want to see the reality of things or be involved. Exactly. And it's, it's, it, it's, it raises a question like, a, are you happier or better off with knowing that this is happening because you can't, you know, erase it from your memory. So you know that, you know, when you sit down to a meal and you're eating a steak or you know, a piece of bacon or whatever, that carrying that feeling of guilt because everyone feels it at some point. Is that a happier existence as opposed to, you know, getting involved in some way with either sharing an investigations uh, video or donating to um, one of the many organizations who are working to end this cruel practice or anything like that? I think that you get more of, you know, a sense of happiness, a sense of fulfillment from, you know, doing something about the guilt that you harbor as opposed to pushing it down. Yeah. And I think it's that feeling at the end of the day that you are in it, right? There you are, you've, you've, you know, stepped into it to be able to make an impact um, rather than, you know, that, that flight that we were talking about earlier. Um, I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I really, as always love hearing your perspective. I'm so glad that you know, I get to share it now with everybody else. <laughs> because it's been, you know, for the time that you were undercover, there were those moments where you were able to speak, you know, literally in shadow um, about your investigations, but now you really are able to kind of come out and, and talk about this journey and this experience. Um, let's, let's end this on a, on a bit of a lighter note. Um, let's talk about your vegan cooking adventures and some uh, wisdom or tips that you get from that. <laughs> yeah. I, um, so as I've told you before, I um, I'm not really that great of a cook. And when I first uh, adopted a vegan lifestyle, uh, the cooking was the challenging part and it didn't help that I had um, decided to, you know, adopt that diet before I went into the field because then as an undercover investigator, I'm like cooking all my meals in like these ramshackle ways, like in a microwave or over a like tiny burner or something like that. And they're usually like frozen foods, uh, garden, um, some select corn products, morning star products um, were usually what I gravitated towards. So I've recently been trying to get into, you know, cooking my meals because I, I felt like um, a lot like, you know, a, a little kid trying to learn how to cook all over again. 
Um, mm-hmm. and make my own meals all over again because it's a whole other different diet. But of course, it's like a million times more fulfilling and uh, healthier for me. So I started out with all the frozen products and I still swear by them to this day. So they're so much easier for me. Like I'm the type who like will burn water <laughs> or whatnot. So um, I've been trying to get into the habit of cooking more of the meals I eat on a traditional stovetop and actually putting ingredients in and things like that and trying to make it from scratch. So it's been really challenging and I burn a lot of the food that I make. I will always (laughs) ask my girlfriend, what fire is this supposed to be on or what number on like turning the dial to like you know for it goes from one to like seven or something and I always try to make sure that I have it at the right number to make sure that I don't burn anything but it's it's definitely going to be a journey for me but it, it it's possible and it's a lot better than the alternative and it can be done you can learn how to cook these meals it's just learning a different way of doing things and a better way of doing things. So this is the next challenge for you, the next chapter of your, of your life, <laughs> figuring out how to uh, vegetables. Yeah, I, I picture a lot of smoke alarms going off in the near future. Um, hopefully not anytime soon with all the smoke that's outside. I don't want it to be in my home as well. Um, but yeah, I... I predict a lot of, you know, wacky shenanigans and hijinks going on in the kitchen with me in there. Well, I think, um, I think you have your work cut out for you after spending all that time in the field. (laughs) This is maybe less, uh, less high stakes, uh, no pun intended situation. Um, So thank you so much for taking the time to talk. You know, this has been a really great conversation. I'm I'm so excited. We're recording this before we're actually able to release it. I'm so excited for the moment that we're able to release it and people can actually, you know, kind of really hear your perspective straight from you. And um, until next time, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great. Really fun. Thank you for tuning in to Animal Outlook's Vegan Family Podcast. Have episode ideas or questions about going vegan? Email us at goveganattriveg.com. At